0: Welcome to episode 18 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor.
1: And I'm your co host, JJ. I'm an author and erstwhile editor.
0: We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we're going to talk about query letters, the anatomy of a query letter, how to write a query letter.
1: Yeah, this is another installment in our Publishing 201 series. Uh, When we talked about queries the first time, we just, we gave kind of more of a broad overview about the querying process, about being agented and representation. So this is a A little bit more of a hands-on, how-to kind of an episode. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty excited about this. Um, I mean, personally, I kind of like writing queries, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I used to hate them, but I feel like after a couple years of working and publishing, there's like a switch that flipped in my brain. So Mm -hmm. I feel like I can do it much better and much more easily now than I, I used to be able to. Um mm-hmm. I will say it does require some distance <laughs> from your work, like emotional distance from your work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've actually never had to write a query uh yet at this point in my writing journey, but I have read thousands upon thousands and thousands of queries. Um you know, I started working in a literary agency and so of course that was a huge part of my job description uh while I was there, but also um when I moved over into publishing, I worked at a small independent publisher, and we did uh, we did accept unsolicited manuscripts. And so, part of my job was to read um, all the queries that came in uh, that were unagented. And so, we read. I read lots and lots and lots of query letters over the last ten
1: years. We actually we had what we called slush parties <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at my when I was work as an editor because. The Big Five often does get unsolicited queries, even though pretty much none of them accept unsolicited manuscripts. But we still get them, and we still get a lot of them by paper. So often we just have these enormous bins of Mm -hmm. (laughs) just letters and query letters and manuscripts and whatever. And I don't know, maybe once a quarter or something, we'd all kind of organize. We'd order pizza. We'd sit in the conference room and just open all the letters Mm -hmm. and read them. And, you know, if anything was interesting, we'd obviously set that aside to maybe pursue at a later date. But, you know, it was often kind of sitting there and sending form rejections. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, uh, yeah, I've read a lot of queries myself. I was an intern at a literary agency.
0: (laughs) Yep. Lots of stuffing envelopes for interns. Opening envelopes, stuffing envelopes. Mm -hmm.
1: It's kind of what you do. (laughs) But yeah, I read a lot of slush, and in when I was an intern, I actually would set aside the query letters for the agent I was interning for, you know, something interested him that I thought would interest him, would interest him, I would put aside and say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, why don't you read this if you want to request them? And, and ultimately, he actually just gave me the authority, just request what you think is interesting. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And I had that authority, too, when I was an assistant, and... I would often, um, so when I was an assistant, I would go through the slush for the agents that I worked for, and then I also uh, managed an intern. And so the intern would go through the slush and then pick out a certain level of things to give to me that I would then distill even further and then give a certain amount to the agent. Um, But at a certain point, I did just start requesting things directly. Um, I was notoriously, notoriously stingy and picky about requesting <laughs> from queries i my you know the other assistants used to um used to kind of give me a little bit of of crap for it <laughs> I was very particular about what I would request. And then I had some interns who were very like request happy, who would like request all this stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. that even sounded like remotely um interesting. And so, you know, interns were only for three months though, so they would be there for three months and request all this stuff and then they'd leave and I would have to sift through all of their (laughs) requests. So I stopped letting my interns request directly and told them they had to pass everything through me.
1: Uh, at that point. Yeah, um, I I ended up requesting things directly. But to be completely honest, when you read slush, just the ability to string two sentences together coherently immediately puts you miles ahead of every other slush Mm -hmm. pile letter that comes in. And I know it sounds a little bit pat to say that, but it's it's true. I mean, I used to some of the most egregious query letters. And by egregious I mean they had no grasp of grammar. They had no idea how to construct a sentence. Capitalization rules were out the window. Things that just made no sense. I would, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes the actual the most egregious I would kind of set aside in in a I I kept a folder that was just like at least I'm not this guy.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, there are kind of bulletin boards and walls of fame and, and, you know, those things exist mm-hmm. out there. Um, I don't want to rag on it too much because writing query letters is hard. I mean, I, I, um, have coached people through writing them and have read a lot of them and I know that, um, it, it takes a certain amount of distance, as JJ said. You really have to be able to get, A little bit of distance from your work, uh, in order to write a successful query letter and, and think about it in a different way. Query letter writing is not necessarily about accessing that creative part of your brain so much as like a business or marketing part of your brain, Mm um, you know, it, I think when you're writing a novel, if you write fiction, you know, you're very tapped into this creative vein. And one of the most common mistakes I see in query letters are people who try to carry too much of that creativity over into their query letter, yeah. and it it just kind of fails abysmally. <laughs> um, you know, but but you know, rather than starting to get ahead of ourselves a little bit, why don't we why don't we start kind of trying to break it down? What is the query formula?
1: So, a lot of people resist the notion of a formula, and to some extent, I would say I also do as well. But I can't deny that there are a lot of common elements in what I consider successful copy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The sort of elements that get distilled down and put into a query or put into a a copy are are a, a a, a number of things. Most importantly... We've mentioned this before in previous podcasts, but the inciting incident,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's pretty important to look up, as well as what I had called the the point or the moment of no return, the moment the protagonist gets personally involved in the narrative. Um, so once you've identified those two things, you are more or less halfway, you have the parts to assemble a query letter mm-hmm. because another mistake or not mistake, but a lot of things I think beginner writers will put into a query is too much. Mm-hmm. You want to entice whoever's reading your query to, to want to read more. So there's actually no point in giving away absolutely every part, every twist, every turn in your plot. Mm-hmm. You don't need to do that. You just need to give them enough information to know what the stakes are and to want to keep reading. So that's why I say you need the inciting in, incident and you need the moment the protagonist gets personally involved in the story because that, I think that's enough. I think that's kind of enough information to get to get a sense of where the story is headed, who the characters are, And why you would want to keep reading. And if I want to read more, I would simply just request the rest of the manuscript. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think those things are really important. The inciting incident, um, the moment of no return. The point is really that you want to be specific. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about specific characters and specific events in your query letters. I see a lot of query letters try to go really broad and talk about like the larger themes of their work. Um, (laughs) And uh, (laughs) a query letter is not the place for that. You know, I see a lot of like this novel addresses, you know, deep, um, you know, themes of identity and loss and forging one's own family amidst a nuclear wasteland or like, you know, like this just kind of like this big general themes um, that, the you know, that are recurring throughout the work. And that doesn't tell me anything about your book or why it's specific and why I should read that. It just tells me that it's a book that, you know, addresses these grandiose themes. And I have no sense of how it addresses those themes or if it's going to do it well or if I care or, or anything like that. You, you want to be specific. You want characters. You want
1: plot. The thing about query letters is that, one, there is a trick to them. Which, again, we'll give you the formula, quote formula, in a bit. But let's say you're at dinner with a friend and your friend asks you, Hey, what is your book about? What would you tell him? Would you actually sit down and be like, So, my book is about these two characters named X and Y. And this thing happens and then they go on this journey and then they meet this villain. And would you, at this dinner, basically tell the entire plot of your book to your friend? I mean, I don't know. Actually, would you do that? You might, <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't. And, you know, it, a lot of people who have asked me about my own book, and they ask me, "So, what's your book about?" And I basically give them a pretty simple. So, you know, I start out kind of with the basic, high concept pitch, as we mentioned in a previous podcast. They say, "Yeah, oh, it's kind of kind of like a retelling of Labyrinth, set in 18th century Bavaria." Basically, there's this young woman whose sister gets stolen by the Goblin King, so she has to go underground to rescue her sister and makes a bargain with him to for her sister's life. And that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to give every plot twist away. I'm not going to give every possible s- specific, but I kind of gave you the basic shape of the story and where it's headed. And the query is really more or less going to be the same thing. You're trying to get... The agent who is reading your query just okay I get a general gist and I'm interested in reading more
0: mm-hmm. yeah I think you know the the other side of the coin is you want to be specific you want to talk about specific characters specific events you know your specific story but you don't want to get so lost in the minutiae that it doesn't make sense anymore. I see this a lot with, um, genre queries, especially fantasy or science fiction Mm -hmm. where people will pile in like a lot of vocabulary or a lot of, um, world building stuff into their query. And it's just too much, you know, it's like, there are too many terms and there's too many, you know, strange vocab words and you just get lost in like,
1: the world building of it. Yeah. The forest Um, for the trees problem.
0: Yeah. You want to, you want to put enough details in there so that I know, okay, it's a fantasy or a sci-fi. And I mean, I think you should pretty much state your genre explicitly anyway. Um, but you want to kind of sprinkle that in there, but it's very much like a light hand, you know, just season your query a little bit with some of those words that are easily understood in context. Mm And really, I think the more sparse you can be with that, the better, because I start trying to think, okay, well, what is, you know, the, the, I can't even think of like a made up, you know, <laughs> example of, of, you know, if it's like a dystopian, like what is the, the, I don't write this, so I don't know. But, but you know what I'm thinking of. If you are reading something that is, um, that is genre heavy and there's too much of those words in there. It starts to just read like word salad. It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. So then why don't we get down to the actual formula itself? Um, This is going to be pretty generic, obviously as any formula is, but as we mentioned before, the first things you should identify are the inciting incident and the moment the protagonist gets personally involved in the narrative. So, once you've done that, the formula looks something like this. so you have one or two sentences of brief setup you just basic setup laying the the scene the context of the story. you know this is a historical or it's in 1912, before the world's fair, you know, just basic setup. You know, you just want like mm-hmm. one, one or two sentences, basically be as brief as you possibly can. But when mm-hmm. you inciting incident. So set up, then but when you have your inciting incident. And then what are the consequences of the inciting incident? So for example, if we're, if we're doing... We'll say a Western, you know, it's a sleepy town on the border of, you know, whatever, of whatever territory. Things are pretty quiet. But when the stranger comes into town, what happens? You know, he stirs up trouble. So-and-so knows who he is. Someone so doesn't know who he is. You know, he has secret, you know, what hap- What's the consequences of your inciting incident?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, you have your setup, but when, the inciting incident, and then you have the consequences of the inciting incident. And that should hopefully be, we'll say, the first paragraph, which is maybe four or five sentences. And that's, so that's kind of the first paragraph, your introductory paragraph of of your query letter. And then, so you sort of explain what the consequences of the inciting incident are, and then, so then the moment of no return. Uh-huh. So if we go back to that Western example, so, but when the stranger comes to town, the mayor knows he has to bury this bag of treasure in his backyard. You know, that's kind of, you know, the moment he decides that's the moment he gets involved in the narrative. So then he has to decide what to do with this bag of gold, who to tell, you know, that uh-huh. sort of thing. And then what are the consequences consequences of that decision. So then the mayor decides to bury, I don't know, treasure in his backyard. But so someone sees him do it that he doesn't want to have seen. What is he hiding? You know, these are sort of questions that are being brought up when you have the, but when blank. So then kind of structure there. And ultimately, hopefully that shouldn't be more than two or three paragraphs. A query mm-hmm. letter shouldn't actually be that long. No, I think the shorter no. the better. Uh, I think the sweet spot, and I think I've mentioned this before, but the sweet spot is basically about two hundred fifty to four hundred words. Mm-hmm. I think you can maybe push it to four hundred if you're ha- if you're writing a genre book and you need to explain a little bit more about the way the society is structured or something or the way magic works or something like that. If you need to take a little bit more time to explain it, then you could take a little bit more space, but otherwise the shorter, the better. Mm
0: -hmm. You really have to think of it as, you know, from the moment an agent opens your email or opens your letter, the countdown has started, you know, for how long you have to get their interest and you really don't have very long. Mm -hmm. And so if your query doesn't get to the point, Immediately, you're you're wasting that precious window of attention and time that you have.
1: Yeah, I mean, think about how many queries an agent reads any time they go through their inbox. I'd say, on average, it's going to be 300, 400 queries a day. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. So brevity really helps. The quicker you get to the point, the better able you will be to catch that agent's attention. If it takes you three paragraphs just to get to your inciting incident, I will guarantee you the agent's probably been like, delete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next. I mean, query letters, they're not going to spend an hour a day doing this. They're probably going to read them on their lunch break, you mm-hmm. know, on their way home on the subway. Once they get home while they're eating dinner, you know, it's not going to necessarily be a, a dedicated time set aside, you know, like an hour every day to seriously contemplate these queries in their inbox. They just don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. They're going to be focused on working for their other clients. So the quicker you get to the point, the tighter the copy is, the briefer it is, the better chance you have. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And this, you know, kind of goes back to the whole thing of let let your story speak for itself. Don't don't talk about your book, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't say, oh, this is a book that, you know, will, you know, earn its place among classics forever because it does all these wonderful things and it's, you know, all about this great stuff and the characters are so unique. And, like, don't talk about your book. Just tell that inciting incident, those basic plot points, you know, it's kind of like that show-don't-tell sort of a thing. Like, just get to the point. Let us know who, what, where, when, why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Answer, you know, the basic questions. And don't worry about too much setup. You know, like, of course, that can be really overwhelming. And that's a common problem that you see in queries, actually, is mm-hmm. people who feel like, oh, wow, I need to give you all of this unver- information so that you understand you know, the context for my inciting incident. And without that context, it won't make any sense. And that seems to be a common fear of writers. And so they give you all this like history of their universe and stuff up front before they actually get to anything relevant. Ignore that urge, if at all possible. We really don't, you don't really need a lot of context. You know, I can read the novel and get that backstory and get, you Mm -hmm. know, that enriched world building. So like, if you think of like, The Hunger Games, for example. I don't need the history of Panem. I don't need to know that this is, you know, pseudo-America set in a dystopian future where, you know, this region of the country has now become, you know, whatever. Like, I don't need all this history of this. I need to know this on the eve of the Hunger, or on the morning of the Hunger Games, District 12 is sleeping in, you know, to have the last few moments moments of peace they can before... The Hunger Games begin and their lives are turned upside down, but 16-year-old Katniss Everdeen is in the woods fighting for her life for survival. When her sister Prim's name is pulled in the reaping, Katniss volunteers and sends herself into certain death. But her will to survive overrides, you know, the odds against her and she, you know, blah 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 blah. Like I'm sure that Suzanne Collins Query Letter was much better than that, but that's <laughs> it. Like, just get to the point. We don't need all of this stuff. We just need to know the bones, the who, what, the where, the why. Yeah. All that stuff.
1: Yeah, the setup for the Hunger Games, in one or two sentences, is essentially in the far future. The United States has turned into Panem, a society that's divided between the haves and the have-nots. And the have-nots compete every year in the Hunger Games, where the winner wins a year's worth of food for his or her district. That's it. That's all the setup you need. Period. In the far future, it's a big class division. You know, And then you have 16-year-old Katniss Everdeen, just wants to survive. But when her sister's mm-hmm. name is pulled, is called to be a participant in the Hunger Games and then she volunteers. So that's basic, you know, the very basic. You don't need to know about the war, you don't need to know mm-hmm. how the districts came to be. You don't need any of that. You just need to know that someone Katniss has love, Katniss loves is in mortal danger, so she goes in her place. And the story is her fight for survival. That's all mm-hmm. that's it. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know about her backstory, about her father and be taking care of her family and, and her entanglement with Gail and PETA. You don't need any of that information. Mm-mm. It's a straightforward story, even though all of that's in the book and that all of that is, in fact, relevant to the book, it's actually not the story.
0: Yeah. And that's another thing, too, that I notice as a common problem in queries is too many, too much name dropping. Like you know, they just you just name every single character in there. Mm-hmm. I think it's generally suggested to stick to no more than 3 character names in your query that you really shouldn't have to name more than 3 people and really it should be, you know, the protagonist, the villain, and the villain can be, you know, like an establishment, you know, you can have like The Hunger Games itself, you know, right, as kind right. of the ominous villain, you don't need to name President Snow or, you know, whoever
1: um the game but you need makers your pro- or, you know.
0: Yeah, you know, some kind of some kind of antagonist um of some kind, whether it's a, you know, individual or a force or something. Um, you need the protagonist, the antagonist, and, you know, maybe a sidekick or another relevant person. You know, if you're writing a romance then obviously you need the two, um, members of the couple, you know, but, but you don't, you don't need all that other stuff. You know, you don't need like, All of these names of her friends or her sisters or her family or her this or her that or all these other people that might pop in and out of the story, but aren't part of that core narrative.
1: Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, I'm going to put myself on the line and I actually pulled up my query that I sent my agent. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to read it out loud to you and... Just uh, Kelly can give me her critique, I guess, about whether or not she would request my manuscript. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so, Dear Agent, Beware the Goblin Men and the Wares They Sell. All her life, 19 year old Liesel has heard tales of the beautiful, mysterious Goblin King. He is the Lord of Mischief, the ruler underground, and the music around which her music is composed. Yet, as Liesel helps shoulder the burden of running her family's inn, her dreams of composition and childish fancies about the Goblin King must be set aside in favor of more practical concerns. But if Liesel has has forgotten the Underground, the Underground has not forgotten her. When her sister Keta is taken by the Goblins, Liesel journeys to their realm to rescue her and return her to the world above. The Goblin King agrees to let Keta go, for a price. The life of a maiden must be given to the land in accordance with the old laws. A life for a life, he says. Without sacrifice, nothing good can grow. Without death, there can be no rebirth. In exchange for her sister's freedom, Liesl offers her hand in marriage to the Goblin King. He accepts. Down in the underground, Liesl discovers that the Goblin King still inspires her, musically, physically, emotionally. Yet even as her talent blossoms, Liesl's life is slowly fading away, the price she paid for becoming the Goblin King's bride. As the two of them grow closer, they must learn what it is they are each willing to sacrifice, her life, her music, or the end of the world. Inspired by the movies Labyrinth and Amadeus, The Goblin King is a gothic romance in the vein of Robin McKinley's Beauty, Martine Leavitt's Ketra and Lord Death, and Juliet Marillier's Heart's Blood. So, there you have it. Yay! Um,
0: I would have requested it, <laughs> which obviously, obviously, sounds like such a suck up thing, but it does tick a lot of my boxes, and that's something that we should mention too. Is that you could write, you know, the the perfect query on paper and follow all of this advice and come up with a really solid query, and still have an agent pass because it's just not to that agent's taste, mm-hmm. and you know, that's unfortunate, but it's just a part of this business. Um, but you know, I love the labyrinth, I love romance, I love a lot of those things. So I would have likely requested that. The reasons that I think that it's a successful query are um, we get a sense of what it is right up front. You have lines in there and a slight um, tone that indicates this kind of a fairy tale. Um, Aura to the story But it's not You know you don't go All the way there You don't go into this like Well once upon a time This Mm -hmm. was a fairy tale Of a blah 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 You just have it sprinkled In there a little bit So I get a sense of what to expect in that sense. I know who it's Liesel. I know that Liesel has all these personal ambitions that have been set aside in order to fulfill her family obligations. I know that she loves her sister very much and that when her sister is taken underground, Liesel goes after her and, um, sacrifices herself to save her sister. I know that, Once that happens, um, she actually blossoms to a certain extent and she and the Goblin King grow closer and then realize that although she might be um, blossoming creatively and having this romance blossom, it is taking a toll on her life itself. And I know what the stakes are. The stakes are that staying underground as the Goblin King's bride are killing her literally Mm -hmm. and they together need to decide what is going to happen so in this sense that antagonist that we were talking about isn't necessarily the goblin king it's just the circumstances of being there it's the ticking time bomb of Liesl's life fading away from her the longer that she stays there um so I feel like I have all the information that I need to know about the story I'm interested I still have questions left what's going to happen? What are they going to decide? Are they going to decide together? Or will they be against one another in this decision? You know, there's still a lot of questions for me to have, to want to read more and find those answers. But I feel like I have everything that I essentially need to know.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it took, it didn't actually take me that long to write this query, because like I said, by this point, I'd sort of gotten the trick of it. But there are other major characters in my book, aside from Liesl, the Goblin King, and her sister. I picked her sister because her sister is a catalyst for the story. Mm-hmm. When her sister is taken, that's when Liesl has to take action. But there is another character in there that is extremely close to my heart that I really love, and that's actually Liesl's younger brother. Younger, She has a younger brother named Yosef, who is a violin prodigy. And I tried to hint in the the text of the query that music is a huge part of this family. She is a musician, you know, that's her, what her ambitions are to become a composer, all these sorts of things. So she has a younger brother who is a huge emotional threat in this book um, and informs a lot of the decisions that she makes, especially early on in the novel. But as you might have noticed, he is nowhere in the query. Mm-hmm. But that's because Yosef is not an active catalyst of the story. He's a supplement to Liesl's emotional journey, and he's someone that she considers when she makes all of her decisions, but he's not moving the story along, and therefore he has no place in the query.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention about your query, too, is at the end you cite other specific books that are similar to your book. You do the you know, kind of the X meets Y of the Labyrinth and Amadeus, but then you also name specific titles, um, that would be kind of companions, um, whether in tone or content to your book. And that's something that I am kind of divided on as an element in a query. I think it's becoming more and more popular to do that. Um, you know, I think several years ago, maybe that wasn't as prevalent of a thing. And I think, Again, and this kind of goes back to the things we were discussing during our high concept podcast. Um, I think if you choose the right things, it works quite well. And if you choose the wrong things, yeah, it just confuses you. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't personally need that in my query letters, um, You know, I don't know how standard it is or how, you know, agents across the board, whether or not they prefer that kind of information or not. If it's something that you choose to put in there, I just really want you to select your comp titles wisely. Really put a lot of thought into the comp titles that you're selecting and and why and what it is about those titles that will call to mind your book.
1: Yeah, and if you notice, the ones that I picked the book comps that I picked, if you know them, um, you would probably realize that I picked them for the tone that the books have taken. Mm-hmm. Um, both, All of them have a strong romantic element. All of them have a fantasy element and a fairy tale element to them. Two of them are actually retellings of Beauty and the Beast. Robin <laughs> McKinley's Beauty and Juliet Morillier's Heart's Blood are both retellings of Beauty and the Beast. And Ketra and Lord Death, while not a direct retelling of anything has a very folkloric feel. So Mm -hmm. those were the, the comps I picked and the reason I picked them. Cause I, I wasn't going to go in there and be like, well, my book is like Twilight, but with the Goblin King.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And again, like this is all down to research. Again, when you're querying agents, you should be doing a lot of research in the first place to determine who you want to query and if your book is the right fit for their list and so on and so forth. And so apply that same level of research to the comp titles that you select and maybe even, you know, run them by your critique partners. If I say these three titles, you know, what, what do you pull from that? What does that Mm -hmm. say to you? How would you connect that to my book? Um, you know, so again, I think it's an element of query letters that's becoming more and more popular. I think when done well, it's really effective. Um, but I see it done poorly a lot. And so (laughs) proceed with caution, (laughs) I guess, in terms of that.
1: As, as we'd mentioned before, the more narrow and the more specific you get in your comps, the better it is. Mm -hmm. It it shows, one, that you've done your research. Um, And the more narrow and the more specific your comp titles are, the easier it is to figure out what your book might have in common with them. So, like I said, I picked three titles that were fairy tale retellings or had a fairy tale feel to them. And that's really kind of the point I wanted to drive across in my query letter, which is that this is... Kind of a fairy tale, essentially. It's not necessarily a strict retelling of anything that's like retold by the Grimm brothers, but it has mm-hmm. that lyrical, f- fairy tale, folkloric mm-hmm. sort of feel.
0: Well, you open with that line, it's like, Beware the goblins and the wares they sell. That's not it exactly, but it's similar. What's yeah. the opening line?
1: Beware the goblin men and the wares they sell. Mm-hmm.
0: And that, um, you know, that kind of sets a tone for the entire query and it's incredibly brief. I don't want a huge quote, you know, from your book at the top of your query. (laughs) Um, I, I see that a lot too, where someone will like quote an excerpt of their book, um, at the top of their query and then let it follow. And, and that, you know, I, I don't, necessarily love either because I don't think it's informative. It's this quote without context and it doesn't really mean much. But if you have a line like that, which I don't even know if that's exactly a line in your book or if that's just kind of like your opening query
1: line that sets your tone. It was actually, it it was until my editor actually asked me to put in a prologue. It was actually the first line (laughs) of my book. The first line. Yeah. And I
0: think that's fine because I think it's brief and I think it's evocative and I think it's immediately explained by the context, if it were longer or if I see a lot of like dialogue or like, um, like almost like cliffhanger action-y type quotes up there on the top of queries, don't, don't do that. You know, if you have a a line you can pull as, you know, like, um, like if you were doing the Hunger Games, you know, and may the odds be ever in your favor, you Mm -hmm, know, you could mm -hmm. probably pull that not to lead your query, but you could put that in your query as like, bam, you know, sort of really driving home your point. You can do that. But again, it's, you know, wield it like a scalpel, not like, you know, a big mallet. Yes. <laughs> be yes. delicate in the way in which you will apply those things. Because again, they can be really effective or not.
1: I mean, I can go through the annals of all the query letters I've written for the projects that I've <laughs> Um, to be completely honest, I've actually only ever sent out two queries. I um, Long before Winter Song, I had written an adult literary novel sort of long story. Anyway, um, this was the first novel that I queried, but I'd only ever queried like five agents and then ultimately pulled it out of consideration because I didn't want that to be the first book that I set out, you know. I didn't want that to be the first book I published, basically, is what it came down to. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did kind of something similar to what I did for this query, which obviously, as you can tell at the time, was called The Goblin King. Um, I pulled a line from my book that I thought illustrated the, the character trajectory. And this is my own particular writing quirk. I think, and of course, Kelly has, in fact read a lot of my writing, I think my query gets across my writing voice. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to do. (laughs) I understand that. I
0: think it does, but I don't, I I think it does. And I guess this is a caveat because I actually have not read Winter Song um, in any incarnation at all. Um, So I don't know how much of the voice of the query is exactly the the tone of the book. I think in general, having read other things of your, that you've written and read other um, queer letters and synopsises and things like that that you've done um, for those other projects, you convey the tone and the voice of your writing without writing in that voice or tone.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. I think,
0: <laughs> and that's a subtle difference. Like that's a subtle difference too, but I think it's in. An important one, and that's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about writers who get, like, way too creative in their query letters. I want a hint of the voice and the tone. If it's gothic or, you know, romantic or fantasy or something, I want to know that and I want to be able to tell that from your query letter. I want to know that you can handle that genre deftly, uh, that you know how to write, that you know, that spark is there, but I don't want you to necessarily write your query letter in the exact same voice that you write your book in. You know, if you've got a YA contemporary, you know, about a girl, I don't necessarily want you writing the query letter from her point of view. I don't think that, I don't think that that works as well as some writers believe that it will. A query letter has a very specific purpose, and I think a lot of times, um, I think writers kind of view query letters almost as like a like a highlights reel. If you were like an actor or a, <laughs> a designer or something, and you wanted to like have like a highlights reel of like here's all the stuff that I can do, this is my I can range. do
1: this, I can do that, and you know like, uh,
0: and that's not the purpose of a query letter, and it really will dock you a lot of points because to be a hundred percent honest, I'll I'll just stop reading it. Like it just, it just won't. I have very specific questions and information that I need when I open a query letter. And if I'm not getting those things, then I have to move on and find something that will give me those things. Um, And so getting too creative in a query letter, writing, you know, from the point of view of your character or writing, you know, too much in Mm -hmm. that voice is not, what you want to do you want to allude to it you want shades of it you want to communicate it in your query letter without being quite so literal about it
1: yeah it's it's hard to explain how to do because well my query is obviously written in the third person um and that is what i would recommend write your query in the third person because when i read a query in the first person i'm immediately like um Who's talking to me? Is it the author? Mm-hmm. And if it's the author, why are they talking to me like this? It just, it's weird. And you never want to stick out in that way. You want to stick out in a good way. Like this is my work and it's interesting. You don't ever want to stand out of the slush pile as being weird <laughs> or strange mm-hmm. or something just that you can't understand. Um, so write your query in the third person. Um, my book is written, which song is written in first. So you know, if I wanted to write a query in the first person, which I wouldn't do, but you know, imagine this now when I would say something like, you know, I'm 19 years old. It just, it just sounds weird.
0: No, No, don't do it. Don't do
1: it. (laughs) Just don't do it. It, it, it just uh, like, I don't know. You get, it's, you know, it's, you know, you get kind of the spam emails and like the subject line is like your name. And then it's like, the kind of like weirdly falsely <laughs> intimate <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's what it feels like when you get a query letter in the first person it feels like intimacy is being forced upon you and you're just kind of like whoa uh, that's crossing a line that i don't like yeah. so
0: it's too confusing there's too no f- no i think you know i think in general um if you're If you're sending your query via email, which I think is uh, really probably what most queries, how most queries are sent these days, you know, you want, um, you know, black font, some sort of normal font, not anything super crazy, you know, no clip art, no, (laughs) like, keep it professional. It's a professional letter seeking a business relationship keep that in mind if you're sending um a query through the mail don't send swag
1: yeah it's just gonna
0: wind up on someone's desk and not do anything i mean
1: and it's a waste of your postage
0: it's a waste of your postage um you know things i've received along with query letters were like little containers of bubbles um there was a cocktail book that actually sent nips and little cocktail shakers which (laughs) i mean i guess i shouldn't actually complain about that (laughs) it sent me booze but um i can't remember if i actually drank it or not though probably i did but um like little just just little things that you think tie into your book in some way and you think it will make you stand out because you've sent a thing don't it's not, you know, God help you if you send glitter or confetti oh, or any kind God, of thing where worst. I open my letter and my desk is just covered in this stuff. People do it. It happens frequently. Yep. And it's just like, oh, my God, you just want to, like, reach through the paper and strangle someone. Um so keep in mind it's it's a professional letter you're seeking a business relationship with someone you should present yourself professionally
1: a query letter I've always kind of likened it to a cover letter if you're sending a resume mm-hmm. if you're applying for a job and you know the your manuscript is your CV and the query letter is your cover letter so you want those to be as professional as possible uh, because You wouldn't, or at least I hope, you wouldn't send your CV printed on, like, bright glittery paper and scented with cologne in, like, curly font.
0: Well, I mean, if you're Elle Woods, then (laughs)
1: fine.
0: (laughs) But, like, what are the odds that you are Elle Woods? Probably not very high. (laughs) Yes. There's only one Elle Woods, everybody. Only,
1: yes. And she's from Legally Blonde, if you guys don't know that reference.
0: If you don't know that reference, you should rectify it immediately because it's an excellent movie.
1: Also, do you know it was filmed at my high school?
0: That's your high school?
1: Yes. Well, kind of. Um so the scene where Elle has sent in her video like her yeah, video yeah, application. Yeah her video essay, her video essay. Um, so you know, the room, all the admission board people are sitting in. Yes. That's the library of my high school.
0: That's a fancy library.
1: Well, it's actually not the school library. It just was the library of, of, well, it's called the library because it was actually the library when my school was still a mansion. (laughs) Uh. Um, and it was great because when Legally Blonde was filming at my high school, um, they catered lunch for us for the three days they were filming there. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, we always loved it when we had film crews. This is, this is what happens when you go to school in Southern California. You guys, you just, this, this is just regular stuff. <laughs>
0: wow. My high school was not like that. <laughs>
1: My high school was the site, aside from Legally Blonde, which was the biggest, there were scenes in the movie Matilda mm-hmm. with Mara Wilson uh, from the 90s that were filmed there, um, a Disney Channel movie about cheerleading, that the title of which escapes me at the moment, was also filmed in my <laughs> school, uh, an 80s TV show called Heart to Heart. <laughs>
0: That is the most 80s TV show title I've
1: ever heard. Oh, and wait till you hear what the premise is. The premise is a husband and wife spy team are co-undercover at Fat Camp. (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) 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 The episode is great, by the way. It's so 80s. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And actually, even better, I was in Barnes & Noble the other day, and I actually saw the DVD box set for Heart to Heart, and my school was on the cover of the DVD box set. Did you buy it? I would have bought it. No, I didn't buy it, but I, it's, it, it, so there's proof that was, it was filmed at my high school. <laughs> oh, wow.
0: Okay. I hope you all enjoyed that uh, comic <laughs> interlude.
1: So I think, I mean, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to add about query letters in general?
0: I think, you know, more or less, I think we covered it all. I think it is really, really difficult to talk about queries without having concrete examples to work from. um, Which is why, actually, we are going to be inviting, uh, pub crawl readers and podcast listeners to submit your queries to us. Um, we are going to be doing a quote unquote live, uh, critique of queries Mm -hmm. on the podcast. I think we're going to choose about five of them and we'll remove all identifying information. So we'll remove your name, we'll remove your book title, um, anything, you know, that you think would identify you or your query in any way will remove and just read them and kind of go through and talk about the things that are working, the things that are not working, um, and hopefully give you some feedback that can really help you improve your query letter. Um, and if you've got an excellent, perfect query letter, then send that into us too. So (laughs) we can can have a good example. Um, yeah, but so, yeah. So we're excited about that.
1: Yeah, no, we are. Um, I think if you're gonna send us your query letters, just email us at publishingcrawl at gmail dot com, and uh, put in the subject line in like all caps, like "Pub Crawl Podcast Query Critique," so we know that that's what it's for, as opposed to something else that you know we need to be looking at for publishing crawl. Um, so yeah, just go ahead if you guys have tinkered or have perfected your query letters to, you know, and you think you just need a fresh set of eyes, you can certainly send it in. Kelly and I will try and pick sort of a breadth of genres as we can. Mm -hmm. We're we're not going to just focus on, on YA, even though, you know, we do focus on that a lot at Pub Crawl because a lot of us are YA readers and writers, anything. If you write mystery, if you write romance, if you write horror, anything, any genre, adult, middle grade, young adult, it actually doesn't matter. We'll just take a look because I think the bones of a query, a good query are the same, no matter what category or genre it's in. Mm -hmm. When I was an intern at a literary agency, the agent for whom I worked did a lot of mysteries and thrillers, which admittedly is not a category I read a lot, but ultimately I got very good at identifying which writers were able to get me interested in the story, even if this is not a genre that I read. Mm-hmm. They were able to lay out very clearly for me the stakes, the tension and and why I should be invested. And those were always the ones that got pulled aside and, and given to the agent I was working for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't think don't think that you guys need to limit yourself to just YA. Go ahead and send query letters for whatever that you're write, whatever genre that you're writing in.
0: Yeah. So we're really excited about that. And that will be, when will that be in March at some point in time? How long are we going to leave that open for submissions?
1: We'll leave it open for, we'll say four weeks. We'll say, we'll give you guys like four weeks to send us stuff. And hopefully that will give you guys enough time to send us stuff and enough time for us to actually get five queries to critique. (laughs) Um. And we'll remind you periodically. We'll remind you, like, on Twitter or in, in our blog post or whatever to, you know, go ahead and send it to us. Um, so sometime in March, we'll definitely let you guys know when, when the query Critique episode is happening. All right. So what are you reading lately? Um, actually, kind of a lot. <laughs> I, so I finished pretty recently Challenger Deep by Neil Shusterman. Beth Revis had talked about it. Um, It also won the National Book Award. So it was a book that I kind of knew I wanted to read. And I'm not big on what I consider issue books. Books kind of, they're more, they're generally contemporary novels that focus on an issue. Some Mm -hmm. kind of a little bit like the after school special feel to them. And, If I hadn't had such strong recommendations from people I trusted, I I think I might have given Challenger Deep a skip because it's essentially about mental illness. Now, as somebody who does suffer from mental illness herself, I'm always very particular about books about mental illness. Just yeah, a lot of times, if it's not written by somebody who also has mental illness, it just doesn't ring true. Or the mental, mental illness becomes the point of the book in such a way that makes it like I'm not my bipolar disorder, you guys. (laughs) I have a whole rich life outside of that. Um, So I get kind of a little bit on edge, I guess. Maybe a little bit on the defensive going into reading these books. But I loved Challenger Deep. I thought it was really, just really beautifully done. um, And possibly the most true and real description I've ever read of a manic episode in my life. It it just masterfully done. So um, it, it kind of left me raw when I finished the book in a good way. But I yeah, so I definitely recommend that one that that definitely deserved the award that it won. And um, it also has illustrations and part of like part of it's a contemporary story of this young man struggling with mental illness. It's kind of undiagnosed until later in the book. And then there's sort of a parallel story that's almost fantasy, where he's on a pirate ship. So, as the book goes through, you can start to see where those storylines are beginning to converge. And then you start to wonder what is real and what is not real. So it's really, really well done. So I highly recommend that. I am also reading... I just finished as well, Sound by alexander duncan and this is a science fiction novel uh, i actually really f- enjoyed her first novel which was salvage um so if you guys like kind of it's not space opera they're but they they take place in space um <laughs> but not a space opera in that regard but they do take place in space they're kind of quieter a little bit more contemplative type of science fiction which i really enjoyed that um, I am on a little bit of a sci-fi kick because I'm also reading uh, Morning Star, which is the last uh, book in the Red Rising trilogy by Pierce Brown, and I got approved on NetGalley for Sarah Reese Brennan's newest book, Tell All <gasps> the Wind and Fire. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's a retelling of A Tale of Two Cities with magic, so I'm super looking forward to reading this one. <laughs> So, what about you?
0: Um, I am still a little bit slow on the reading side of things because I'm uh, beholden to my library wait list, but a few things have started to trickle in. So, I just started last night, Assassin's Heart by Sarah. Is it Ahir's? a Hears? I think it's a um, I just started that, so I'm about probably 10 chapters in or so. Um, and I really did not know much of anything about it at all. <laughs> it just, I, just, well, what happened was I um, live in Minneapolis. We used to live in St. Paul and I was in part of the St. Paul library system. We moved to Minneapolis this summer and I've just recently um, become a member of my local county library in Minneapolis and the selection of books that they have is very different, but something that the Hennepin County library does that the Ramsey County library doesn't do is you can pre-order books. Oh! So the, the library will let you know what things they're going to acquire that haven't come in yet or haven't published yet. Oh, I and wish you can... my
1: library did this.
0: Right. My old library didn't. And this library does. And so, um, you know it it will have like this list of stuff and you can get on the waitlist immediately like before it's even published and so um because i found that out i just started like adding myself to <laughs> the waitlist of like everything figuring that you know i'll find out more about it when it arrives <laughs> rather than hearing about a book and then putting myself on the waitlist when it's already like 75 people deep mm-hmm. um so i was actually the first person on this list for this book um for Assassin's Heart. So I just started it. It seems pretty interesting. Um, I, you know, I kind of like, like, not necessarily like spy thrillers straight out. Although I do, I mean, I I love the Bourne movies <laughs> with Matt Damon, the Jason Bourne <laughs> sort of thing. So I guess like spy assassin stuff is kind of my bag, sort of. So it's a YA. It's a, got a female assassin as the protagonist. Um, and it it seems like it's going to be pretty interesting. We'll see where that goes. And then the other thing that just came in from the library that I started is scripted by Maya Rock. Hmm. Um, and Maya was actually a former coworker of mine. She and I both worked at writer's house for the same time at the same time for a little while.
1: I interned for Um, her too.
0: Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, had known that she was going to, um, write a book and I kind of followed along um with her on that uh as she posted about it on her blog and stuff and then it wasn't available at my previous library I think it came out last year it published in 2015 uh and it wasn't available through my other library but when I just joined my local library um it was available and so I uh checked it out right away so I'm excited about that too yay yeah uh, what other media are you in the midst of right now? Oh, God.
1: <laughs> oh, God. So be prepared, you guys, for just flailing. Flailing. Um, so there is a podcast called Limetown, um, which was actually recommended to me by a friend, Nita T- Tyndall. Nita, I'm really sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name. Um, anyway... I happen to like spooky stories um, and horror and sort of speculative fiction, and she had recommended that along with Lore uh, by Aaron Mankey. Lore, I kind of binged through in a couple of days, and they're sort of short, kind of like 25-minute episodes where Aaron Mankey, who is also a writer of thrillers and and sort of horror novels, takes kind of an urban legend or a myth and tell kind of retells it to you and gives you a little bit of factual and historical context. So, um, and I really, really enjoyed lore. Um, I, in a weird way, I found it kind of soothing to mm-hmm. listen to. Well, because Aaron has a really soothing voice. He's a really soothing narrator, and and the music is kind of calming as he's narrating the book to you. And it, it's and I would be listening to this while I'm at my day job and I'm like doing my work and listening to Lore, feeling pretty soothed. And then every once in a while I'd just get like this Ugh, like chills, which just kind of run up my spine. But, you know, I'd go back to being soothed and settled because his voice is so nice and the music is nice. But I recently finished all of Lore, which is a podcast, um, and then decided to finally tackle Limetown. Now unlike lore, which is basically narrative nonfiction, Limetown is a fictional podcast. It is structured the way Serial was structured, the first season of Serial, if you guys listen to that. There is one investigative reporter, her name is Leah Haddock, and she tells you in the first episode that she is going to take you through the story of Limetown in seven parts. The story of Limetown is ten years ago, this small town in Tennessee, which was it was a small town, but essentially it was a research facility. They got these calls and reports about this sort of unprecedented violence that happened in the town. But by the time the authorities got to Limetown, the entire population had disappeared. So that is 327 men, women, and children of which there is absolutely no trace, no hair, no DNA evidence, nothing. So it's Leah is telling the story to you. And this is, a masterful work of storytelling, you guys. Every single episode is crafted in such a way that basically by the time you get to the end, you you need to listen to the next one to find out what happens. But even so, every episode is really good at giving you an answer, but also providing you with another question. And it's just extremely well done. You know, it's Leo reporting on... The history of Limetown, what happened to it, what people speculate might have happened to it, what they were doing in Limetown. But it's also a personal story for her because her uncle was one of the missing. And so, as the further she gets into the story, the more personally involved she gets. So, and also, you guys, it's really creepy. And I have a pretty <laughs> high threshold for creepy. Like, I really do. But I was listening to this at work yesterday, um, and I was at work uh, a little bit late because I was making up some time, and I also just had a lot of work I needed to get done. So that's when I started listening to Limetown. And like I said, I have a really high threshold for creepy, but I had to stop listening because I got too scared. (laughs) I just, like my (laughs) heart was racing. I could feel my blood pressure rising. I just like was so tense that I was like, no, no, I have to to put this aside and listen to something else. And then came home, hid under my covers with my little stuffed seal. I have a stuffed seal named White Harp like cuddled up with her and hid under the covers and like snuggled up against my partner and then I was able to finish listening to Limetown. <laughs> this is like how I had to
0: wait until like daylight to finish Stranger or Life is Strange. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh my God. Um Limetown is actually not that long. Each episode's only probably like again, like twenty five minutes to half hour, So it's only about three hours of content. Um so just to let you guys know, I've already listened to it three times. <laughs> in about 48 hours. <laughs> so that's 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 like the thing that's consumed me most right now.
0: Wow. So what about you? <laughs>
1: um I don't
0: have too much. I did very briefly get pulled back into serial. Mm. Uh, so I listened to the first season of serial obsessively. Uh, we had little, I had a little group of friends at work and we would meet in the break room, um, every Thursday and like discuss the episode (laughs) ad nauseum. Um, and so I was really, really into the first season of serial. And then I'm listening to season two, but not with that kind of intense, obsessive, yeah. uh, enthusiasm that I listened to season one. But, um, the man who was the focus of season one, Adnan Syed, uh, is his case is currently undergoing a court hearing, um, for a complicated system of appeals that I can't fully distill for you in this podcast. But, um, the court hearing was happening last week and serial Sarah Koenig attended the hearing and was doing kind of like updates on it, um, daily for a little while. And so I got way sucked back into those and ended up actually listening to serial season one again Um, (laughs) as a result of that. Um, and then other than that, I think I mentioned briefly last time that I've started watching Avatar The Last Airbender. That is Yay. still happening. Um, and otherwise, there hasn't really been too much else going on in terms of other media for me. Um, I don't know what I've been doing with my time. <laughs> I mean, like I've been reading a little bit and I've been writing a little bit and I've been, you know, doing like a little bit of stuff, but I don't know. I guess the rest of it has gone to like working and having a child and a marriage and all that life stuff. But, um, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Why is it that um, life takes up so much time? It really does take up an awful lot of time. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, but that's it really for me.
1: Yeah. Well, you said you're writing and um, doing that. Are you working on anything specific, or
0: still the same project? Um, and when I say writing, you know, that's being very generous. I'm still trying to um, finish the kind of long synopsis that i had given myself uh i kind of hit the point where i already knew what was going to happen and so now i'm writing in really vague terms kind of the rest of it um and have been working a little bit again on the actual novel itself uh but it's been a little bit here a little bit there i have a writing date potentially scheduled for this upcoming weekend with a friend of mine where hopefully we'll just go to a coffee shop and um just sit together in silence and write so hopefully that will be productive.
1: Yeah. I um well I think I mentioned in my last, in our last podcast that I recently went back on medication for my bipolar disorder. Um obviously it's pretty too soon to tell how that's working out. Um you know medication can take anywhere from like 3 or 4 weeks to kind of to see what how it's doing. Um, and Mm -hmm. you kind of need to be on it for a long time. So still, I'm not really in the mood to write. Like I still think about my writing a lot, you know, if, even if I'm not sitting in front of my computer and putting the words onto the page necessarily, I am thinking about my book and I think I may have solved the pronoun problem. Maybe. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which I mentioned in, in, um. A previous mm-hmm. podcast, that Asian languages don't actually have gendered pronouns the same way that Western languages do. Um, and English, this is gaining more traction now, but English has come to use their and they as the singular neutral pronoun these days. Mm-hmm. And it is becoming accepted in the style manuals. So I think I may have found a way around my my gendered pronoun problem. Nice. <laughs> But we'll see. <laughs> In execution, it may actually be terrible, so who knows?
0: Well, that's the risk with everything, right?
1: Yeah, I know. It's the problem with writing. Mm hmm.
0: <laughs> I did actually just remember, though, what it is that I've been doing that I haven't been reading or writing or watching any other media. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught a class, and so everything that I was doing yes. was prepping for this class. <laughs> I don't know how I forgot that so soon. It, like, consumed my life for an entire month. Um, I taught a class at the Loft Literary Center here in Minneapolis, uh, which is a center that provides – um writing courses and publishing courses, um, to members and the general public. Uh, when I moved here six years ago, I, it was one of my goals, you know, that someday I was going to teach at the loft literary center. I've taken classes there before. Um, it's really just an excellent, excellent place. And I taught a course on publishing contracts. Yay. Yeah, it was really exciting. Um, and I spent a lot of time, Prepping for it. Uh, I was very, very nervous <laughs> about it um, and getting enough students enrolled, and I ended up having a full class. Um, and it went really, really well. I just got my student evaluations back, and they were very positive. And so um, that was really great. That was kind of like on my personal career checklist. Uh, and so it felt really amazing to do it. But I put a lot of prep into it, and that is where all my free time has gone. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was thinking about it. I was like, no, wait, really, what was I doing? Because I haven't read anything and I haven't watched anything. I mean, what have I been doing? And it was all prep for this class. <laughs> That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about sub-rights. Ooh. As all, Yeah, subsidiary rights. All the stuff that, you know, you don't think about. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to tell you to think about it. hmm uh, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice.
1: And just to let you know, you guys, we did have a snafu with the podcast feed this earlier this week, so hopefully it will be finished, or hopefully it will be fine or updated, mm-hmm. but we have moved the podcast to SoundCloud for the time being, so if it's not being updated on any of your feeds, you can certainly go to our SoundCloud page, which I, we will provide a link to in the show notes. Um so anyway though, if it's if it's all good and everything still works, if you like us please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast.
0: It really does. It will improve, you know, our iTunes searching and our visibility
1: um, and Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yep. If you like it, please, please leave us a review. If you want more Pub Crawl goodness, you can always go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry.
1: You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl.
0: You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram.
1: And you can follow me, J.J., at S.J. Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website at sjjones.com.
0: Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLaud, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold.
1: If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr.
0: Thank you so much for listening.
1: Bye. Bye.